Good evening and welcome to Monergy Life. It's a beautiful evening in New York City and I hope all my listeners are doing well. Tonight I have an extra special pleasure to welcome John Ortner and Martha McGuire, husband and wife, soulmates and co-adventurers for over 34 years. John and Martha have been traveling to Asia for, I would say, probably around 34 years. We're going to hear more about that in a few minutes when they call in. And also photographing what they've seen. Um, They're the authors of numerous um, well-received books on uh, spiritual journey to Asia. And uh, I thought it was quite, uh, quite telling to have them on the show tonight because if there's one thing that uh, more of us could use in this country right now is a certain spiritual awareness. And I believe they're calling in. Let's bring them on the line. John, is that you? It is, Robert, and thank you for having me on. Well, welcome to Monergy Life. It's nice to be here. (laughs) I was just uh, giving a brief introduction of you and Martha, and what I was saying while you were just about calling in was uh, that this is an opportune time for us to be discussing uh, a journey to spiritual Asia because this is a time in our country's history where uh, people could people could definitely use uh, more spiritual and more. Uh, Robert, I seem to be getting is that you? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Uh, where people could generally use more spiritual awareness and inspiration, and certainly, I hope that our show tonight will provide both those elements. Uh, I agree, Robert. And you know, I was very lucky, um, as we discussed before, that at a very early age, I became interested in both science and exploration. And um, my first trip to Asia happened fairly early. I was about 20 years old when I first went to India and Nepal and the Kashmir Himalaya. And, of course, um, it affected me incredibly strongly. In fact, it really changed my life in that um, I realized that not so much spiritually when I first went there, but that it was a place that I knew I wanted to spend a lot more time uh, discovering. Before you actually... Uh, did go to Asia. Briefly tell us how you were you were open to traveling, open to adventure. Um, a little bit about your background and how you ended up, um, you know, so lucky and fortunate to to uh, take these trips and to get immersed in the culture of Asia. It's true, and I was lucky from a very young age, and it. It's kind of an example of how small events can really be instrumental in changing your entire life, events that may seem inconsequential at the time, but then end up shaping who you are as a person. And when I was five years old, I asked my parents um, for a butterfly net, and I'm not even sure I remember why, but they came back from one of their trips, and uh, they gave me a butterfly net. And of course, what that did was I became interested in insects and butterflies, and it was kind of an excuse for me to hop on my bicycle, and I started exploring all of the beautiful places. I lived on the north shore of Long Island at a time when they were breaking up some of the gigantic estates of the Gold Coast, the 
Chrysler Estate, the Atlas Estate. And as they sold these places, they would become abandoned before they were actually cut up. And I remember very clearly taking my bicycle and my butterfly net, and I would sneak into these abandoned estates, and they would have the broken uh, greenhouses and old wishing wells. And there were orchards of hundreds of trees with the fruit just falling on the ground. And I became a little budding naturalist. And every day was an adventure, like I said, finding box turtles or tiger salamanders. And that kind of started a life where I felt that I was safe out in the wilderness and I was safe out in nature. And I became a little explorer. You know, I have to say that when you describe your... um your adventures into these uh, estates that were about to be broken up. Uh, For listeners who don't know, we're talking about Gatsby country, aren't we? Yes, in fact, Kings Point, which is the near, you know, I grew up in Great Neck, and Kings Point is the end of Great Neck, and that's where F. Scott Fitzgerald lived, and East Egg and West Egg um, was Little Neck and Great Neck. So, yeah, they were spectacular places. Right, and and when you describe them, it, I think you were quite privileged to be growing up at a time when they weren't broken up into you know uh, subdivisions. Of course, subdivisions in in Kings Point were two acres. So just for but, but still, they, it was coming fast, and as you know, yeah. all of Long Island changed so quickly. I remember having foxes and pheasants uh, in my house all the time, and owls in my backyard, but. Um, Yeah, of course, it became quite suburban, but I was very lucky because uh, my folks were, I, you know, um, traveled quite a bit, and I continued to be interested as a naturalist, Um, but it wasn't to kind of cut to the chase of of spiritual interests. It wasn't until I was about 13, 14, 15, I was reading Herman Hess, I read Siddhartha, And I also uh, received a book um, by Martin Herleman, a black-and-white photographer on Angkor. And in both of those books, I kind of got this idea of these lost cities in Asia. Here I would had been butterfly collecting in these beautiful, abandoned, overgrown estates on Long Island. But there was some place that was even better, um, Asia and the lost kind of cities, So I had seen pictures of Angkor in the overgrown state, in the jungles, and then I read Siddhartha, and I realized that there was a place on the other side of the world that was um, a lot more adventurous than the estates of the North Shore of Long Island. So Uh, I kind of had that that in in my mind, and um, I I, I would say that I used to say it was in the back of my mind, but obviously not so much, because... Um, As soon as I got into college, the first uh, summer that I had free, I went to Asia for the first time. And I was extraordinarily lucky um, when I went there because uh, certain experiences there just changed the rest of my life. Right. And I could appreciate that because, as I think I told you, I took a trip to Asia a few years ago, which I think changed my life, too. And, of course, I I didn't go to India. I went to Thailand and Vietnam. But I was still so impacted by the people and the energy and the spirituality that I encountered that those feelings remain with me even now. And I'm sure they impacted the direction of my life. So uh, I know you've been to Asia so many times, and, and I've only been to Asia once. I hope to go back again soon. But I could definitely appreciate what you're talking about. And for those listeners who have never traveled to Asia, I think John and I would both recommend planning such a trip. 
But let's get back to you, John. So you took a trip when you were in college, and that was the trip to Kashmir? That we, well, yes, it about. started out in India, and I think it's important, I think, this whole idea of expectations in life. And what right. I learned when I first decided I was going to go to India, in my mind, was this magical land, a place in which uh, everyone was a holy man, and it was suffused with this mystical and magical aura of sanctity. And, of course, and what did you find the, when you got there? When I landed in Delhi, um, because... I was so uninformed, I was so uneducated, I was had so few experiences of the Hindu and Buddhist spiritual world. The first thing I did was to go to Chodney Chowk, probably the worst and one of the largest slums in the world outside of New Delhi. And in that slum, there I was, and that was kind of the first shock when I saw people, so many people who were blind, so many people that were missing legs and arms, uh, where disease had rampaged, a truly medieval society. And there I was in this very smelly, very dirty slum where everyone wanted my money and wanted my wallet or wanted me to sponsor them. And I asked myself, well, I, you know, here you are, you were looking for the spirituality, and here it seems like you've, you've found yourself in the worst place, the dirtiest place, the most unholy place. And of course, that's, that's exactly what I needed, because I think ultimately what happened was anyone who goes to India, uh, when they're, whether they're young or old, and even now, it's a certain type of shock that takes over, especially if you go to one of the holy cities, such as Varanasi, um, which is where the, the oldest crematorium in the world is on the banks of the sacred Ganges. So we'll get to that in a bit. But I think right. what shocked me when I first got to Asia was how poor, how dirty, how smelly, how un uh, spiritual. And that shock, I think, kind of broke me a little bit. And it took me the next two months to find out that um, the spiritual nature of India was not in New Delhi, and it wasn't what I thought, but that it indeed did reside there, and that you had to um, enter India and accept India on its own terms. And the more you clung to expectations, the more disappointed you be, you would be. And the more you, you tried for everything to be perfect, the more unhappy you would be. And then now, let me you just, find yourself... Let me, let me, let, yeah, let me just interrupt you for one second. Now, now you could take that and, and apply it to just about every part of life, couldn't you? The it's idea of how much going to India right? educated me. <laughs> When it comes to people having all kinds of expectations and then the reality doesn't meet their expectations, it could create a lot of disappointment. So, and this uh, co constant seeking in our society for perfection. The more right. we seek perfection, the more we find disappointment and uh, unhappiness. Well, it's almost so. as if um, the things that people supposedly want, happiness, peace of mind, um, spiritual knowledge, are the kind of things that come as a byproduct of living a certain way and doing the right things. You can't, you can't just aggressively seek these things. They seem to come on their own terms, on their own time. They do, but there is the important aspect of intention. And I think that our lives have to be guided by intention. intention I couldn't agree with you more such as, I intend to be happy, I intend to be satisfied, I intend to be successful, 
I intend to try and love my friends and be uh, important to them. So these intentions, if you start from that point, I think it's uh, uh, not, we can't be perfect and we are often overcome by emotions and health issues and so many other things. But our intentions, to me, seem so important. And that's something I certainly learned in Asia also. Um, Every time I tried to cling to the American, why don't they do this? Why can't they fix that? And what that led to was great unhappiness. You brought yourself there, and there you're sitting in your hotel room, and you're unhappy because it's not what you you thought it should be. So there's a lot of lessons, I think, from travel, and especially when you go to a place as challenging as India. But what happened to me, to cut a little bit more to the chase, I don't want to run out of time. Um, so from Delhi, I we traveled to Kashmir. And in Kashmir, in those days, it was uh, not having as much strife as it is uh, recently. It was considered a paradise on earth. And people can live in these spectacular houseboats on Lake Dal. Um, uh, There are two main lakes in Srinagar. So we happened to find ourselves kind of on the hippie trail. And we were staying in a beautiful houseboat. And someone came to our houseboat and said, well, you know, what you guys should do is there's, there's a holy cave not far from here. And it's up in the Himalaya, and it's a really nice walk. Why don't you go up there? And right. again, with total ignorance, not realizing that this was a four or five day um, mini expedition. I mean, it snowed in August. We went over 16,000 feet, and for me, that was the first time I had ever been in the Himalaya. But um, I think the most important thing was we decided to go on this pilgrimage. And obviously there was some amount of fate involved because what actually happened was what I know now that I didn't know then was that right. this was Amarnath, one of the greatest Hindu pilgrimage sites um, on the planet. There's a huge cave with an ice stalagmite. And that ice stalagmite in the cave shrinks and grows magically with the phases of the moon. Nobody actually knows how long it's been worshipped, but they believe there's evidence that the Shiva Sadhus and the Aghori Babas have been going to this cave for possibly um, 10 to 15,000 years. Can I stop you for one second? Sure. For those listeners who are not familiar with Shiva and Shiva worship, could you tell us a little about that? Well, in you know, Hinduism is not a single religion. It is a grouping of sects. And essentially, they have, uh, in some ways, you can compare it to the, um, the Chris- Christian idea of how the universe is made in that it's Godhead, which is a triad. So in Christianity, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In India and in hi- the Hindu sects, you have Brahma, Vishnu and um, Shiva, the triad of the great three Hindu gods. And that is uh, the, the, the destroyer, Shiva, as um, Kali, um, Brahma, who creates the universe, and Vishnu, who upholds it in eternity. So mm-hmm. again, Shiva symbolizes the great ascetic. He is the yoga, the yogi. He um, is the knowledge of the Vedas, and he's even pre-Vedic. But when people say they're doing yogic exercises when they're meditating they are following the precepts that were in the vedas and the 
Shiva sadhus, the holy men, are the original yogis, men who wander on pilgrimage routes that take much of their lives and with no possessions whatsoever. Some of them. Not Does this still go on clothes. today? These wanderings. Absolutely. These... There are more than four million Shiva sadhus in India alone. No and kidding. And they go on a pilgrimage route that is up to seventy-five years long, starting in southern India and going to the sacred peak of Kailash in far western Tibet, and then back to southern India. And how so are these sadhus the... selected? Are they are they self-selected, or is somebody? It's quite you incredible. Know, it's a it's a unique thing. It's a little difficult to get into now. Generally, they are solitary, but at certain festivals, such as the Kumbh Mela, when they all join together, it becomes a little bit more militaristic. They join akadas or regiments, and they become seated in regiments. But during most years, they are solitary wanderers with no possessions and only four or five sacred implements. They don't cut their hair, and they wander, most of them, naked uh, from Holy Sight, Unbelievable. And, and so I have one question for some, you, John, b- before we go further. How are these sadhus interacting with an increasingly modernizing and affluent India? How, how is that clash going on? I think that, uh, you know, I haven't been to India for a number of years, but of course, there's no question that all of the most ancient traditions are going to go through changes. And maybe things such as aboriginal ancient um, practices, such as the sadhus and Shiva worship, will have to go through changes as uh, India modernizes. But having right. said that, you can also turn to countries like Thailand, which are completely modernized and yet still have a very rich and um, personal connection to their ancient Buddhist culture. So it is possible that India will be able to keep that connection of modernity to its ancient spiritual roots. So, I think that would be wonderful. And and to give the, the listeners a bit of perspective, let's compare Buddhism to Hinduism in terms of age. Which came first and how long before the other did one come? Hinduism predates Buddhism by many, many millennia, many, many thousands of years, and perhaps tens of thousands of years. No kidding. In fact, in fact Shiva sadhus and pre-Shiva uh, um, uh, ascetics, um, that practice is the oldest continuously practiced religion or religious set of um, practices and customs on earth. And, of course, Buddha really dates from about 500 B.C., and Buddha was a sadhu, a holy man himself, and he then became a reformer, in many ways the way Jesus was a Jew, and essentially worshipped the same God as the Jews. So Buddha Buddha was a Hindu? Buddha was a Hindu, and that is why Buddhism is... Um, Buddhism is, of course, uh, based on the same precepts of Hinduism, karma, reincarnation, and the search for nirvana or enlightenment. Both Buddhists and Hindu all believe in karma, reincarnation, and nirvana. But there are slightly differences in, ter- uh, in terms of the type of nirvana. And like Christianity, from the words of Jesus that went into all kinds of different uh, evolutions, 
Hinduism went through evolutions and Buddhism went into evolutions also from the original Dhammapada, the, word, the words of the Buddha, which create, that's Hinayana Buddhism or Southern Buddhism. Then there are two other or three other kinds, Mahayana, Vajrayana, and of course Zen at the uh, level of no dogma and, you know. But most of my interests um, do stem back to the earliest practices of asceticism. And just to go back to that Thing. So, without knowing anything, when we went on this pilgrimage, we were two right. or three weeks before the actual um, celebration, when all of, when close to a million pilgrims join the holy men and go to the cave. So, Neil and I, without knowing anything, and our one porter, um, Rajbar, I remember his name to this day, <laughs> we walked about five days and we made it to the cave. And because we were two weeks ahead of the pilgrims, we were just with about 10,000 sadhus. And every night we slept in the tents with the sadhus. And their acolytes and assistants spoke perfect English. And that was the first time that I uh, heard the stories of the great pilgrimages that the Shiva sadhus still make to this day. And of right. course, that led me on my own personal pilgrimages throughout you know, Asia and really for the last 30 years um, I have been what's known as a shravakar, a seeker, or I have been going on yatri, which is a type of pilgrimage. Let me ask you something. When you sort of stumbled onto this pilgrimage, because basically, you know, looking back, it almost seems as though you and your friend Neil were selected for some reason to go on this pilgrimage, you know, and what was your feeling? I mean, could you could you tell our listeners how it felt to be sleeping in a tent with 10,000 sadhus? What was going through your mind at that time? I'll, I'll never forget it. We were at 16,000 feet at this sacred lake called Shishnag, and about a mile across this humongous valley, glaciers, green glaciers were dropping into this aquamarine lake, and all night long they were creaking and groaning, and literally explosions we heard as the glaciers dropped giant chunks of ice into the um, lake and sitting around us were hundreds of sadhu camps each one with a little smoldering log and we went from group to group and talked with the different sadhus I was so amazed. It was so foreign to me. I felt that I was so privileged. I knew that I was going to spend a good part of the rest of my life um, either following the sadhus or at least going on portions of the sacred uh, pilgrimage route. And that's indeed what I have done over, uh, you know, more than 35 years. Uh, I have to I say also, that, yeah, go ahead, please. I also want to say, Robert, I want to leave a little time, more than a little time, as much time as possible for Martha, because yes. Martha, I'm sure that more than half of your listeners are women, and I've talked about it kind of from my this point of discovery and uh, my childhood and how I came to these great pilgrimage places, but it, right. Martha comes from another point of view, um, a very uh, amazing point of view. She's an incredible athlete, philosopher, loves the outdoors, uh, and yet is very technologically advanced and is um, very adept with the current digital age and switching everything over to digital things. And I think a lot of women would like to know how Martha has um, felt about all of these expeditions and yeah. you know all of the trips to these sacred pilgrimage places. And Martha and I spent a month together in Varanasi, and there's many things I'm sure that she'll want to tell you about her personal pilgrimages. 
I, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely going to bring Martha on in a few minutes, and I just have to say you've come a long way from Great Neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and, and I, I could appreciate that in my own way, too. So uh, I, that story is riveting, John, you know, how you oh, just ended you up with these sadhus on this pilgrimage. I mean, uh, you know, when you have an experience like that in life, it obviously points you in the direction that you want to take your life, which it did for you. But, I mean, you must have been, like, pinching yourself throughout the experience and saying, am I really here? Is this really happening to me? You know, what's the meaning of all this around me? Because I know when I've been in similar situations, thrust into something totally foreign from what I'm used to, that's been my response. Have you? Did you respond in any way similar to that? You know, India just shakes you to your very core. And that shaking kind of loosens the cobwebs and makes you uh, kind of stop clinging to all these old ideas and expectations. Every time I go to India, I when I first get there, I say, God, what am I doing here? This place is really the traffic jams, the smell. Oh, my God. Right. And within a week, I'm in love again, all over, and... I think there are places, not only India, we, we're not going to have time to go into, but I spent, I've spent i been to Nepal with Martha six times, Bhutan, um, Myanmar, and um, I think some of the most amazing places uh, right now are these places that are changing so quickly. So I urge people who are listening to go to Cambodia, to go to Laos, and to go to Myanmar now. They are spectacular, and the people are completely unspoiled, and yet the ancient traditions suffuse all of their, um, everything they do, and their society, and it's just a wonderful experience, especially not only to go to Hindu societies, but to go to Buddhist societies. Thailand, of course, I've been yeah. many times, and it's just a, an extraordinary place. So I couldn't um, agree with you more, and I think we could we could talk for four or five hours at the minimum about this. I'm totally fascinated <laughs> by that part of the world, even just one trip that I took for a month just opened my heart, my mind, my senses. And the senses in particular were overwhelmed. You know, when you go to a city and, like Bangkok, the oh pollution, my God. the overwhelming sense of humanity, and yet some of the sites like the uh, um, the Royal Palace, you know. And the Emerald Buddha Wat Prakau. Right. And how it's kind just, the Thai people are. Oh, this is, the kindness, the the sincerity, the heartfelt the intelligence. energy. The instead of you know, I think that every every one of our listeners should go to one of these countries to experience what it's like to meet people that don't have an agenda, that are just present and operating from their heart, because that's what I experienced when I went and there. That are filled with um, sanuk joy and intelligence and kindness, and it right. really humbles you when you come from America to see how beautiful um, Thai people are to foreigners and how much they oh. help them. And Robert, I wanted to mention one thing because I know we're going to run out of time that the, right. those of you who are interested in these stories that I've been telling, um, uh, my first book was called Where Every Breath is a Prayer. And that, I still see it on Amazon. And that has uh, photographs and writings from 30 years of pilgrimage. And then, of course, there is a book on Angkor. If those of you who are going to Cambodia and interested in Angkor um, by Abbeville Press. It's a $95 museum book in slipcase. And then there's a more recent book that's come out over the last few years, a, an 
elegant little gem of a book called Buddha, and it's the words of the Buddha by um, uh, the Dhammapada and all of the lost cities and beautiful artwork that the Buddhist uh, philosophy has inspired. And that covers, uh, again, 20 to 30 years of pilgrimage throughout Thailand, Laos, mm. Cambodia, and oh. Myanmar. And I, you so know, I did want to mention... No, I, I, speaking with you, John, I want to grab my passport and just go to these places. <laughs> you are so kind, and I would be happy to guide you. <laughs> so, I may take you up on that. And we want to yeah, bring Martha on and hear, and hear her perspective from being a co-adventurer with you all these years. Thank you so much, Robert. I'm going to hand you off to Martha McGuire, my better half. Hold on. It is my pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you soon, John. Hello. Good evening, Martha. How are you doing Have you been tonight? listening to – I'm doing great. How are you tonight? <laughs> really wonderful. Just looking uh, forward to this interview so much. I So have I. And I have to say, as I told John just a few moments ago, listening to him talk about these places, I've only been to Asia once for about a month, but it's so affected me. And the spirituality that I found and the kindness and the sincerity uh, it was overwhelming to me. I still – those feelings still resonate with me today. And that's because I had never been to a country that was Buddhist before, and I never experienced that type of energy. And uh, I really recommend to all of our listeners that they try and plan a trip to, you know, one of these countries. And as John said, Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia are not yet spoiled, not yet totally modernized, but changing fast and might be a good bet. So welcome again to the show, and if you could give us some idea as to how you got involved with John and how your perspectives, you know, your your initial reaction to going to places like India. Uh, you know, John told us about his initial revulsion, but then he was able to get underneath that and into the spirituality of the place, and it seems to be something that's magnetized him and and has really impacted him for the rest of his life. How did you find your initial immersion in these cultures? Well, I was always a seeker, and I read a lot when I was uh, a young girl. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I uh, didn't really resonate with uh, my parents' religion. I caused a lot of trouble and asked a lot of questions. So I started reading uh, Zen and the Art of Archery and what the Buddha taught and all kinds of wonderful subversive texts. Um, That's what my mother thought they were. And so um, when I got to college, of course, I started doing yoga, and I was introduced to Swami Rama. And I know people have mixed feelings about him, but he he's a fantastic teacher, and he was the first one that I um, really felt that he uh, illuminated what uh, Hinduism was all about, uh, about uh, seeking and awakening and uh, how you could follow this path in a very simple way rather than such an ornate um, uh, ritual that you could just be a simple seeker and you could strive to awaken. So fortunately, after college, I uh, was looking around and trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I met John, and he was coming back from an expedition in Alaska. And really, it was kind of love at first sight. Um, 
we just were on the same wavelength. We felt like we'd known each other forever, and we wanted to do the same thing with our life. So within a few months of being together, we went to Nepal. And the very first day that we were there, we got up at 4 in the morning, and we went to Swayambhunath, which is one of the greatest Buddhist temples in the world. Mm-hmm. And it was really wonderful for me, um, very um, much of an epiphany to be there at dawn and the bells were ringing and the incense and the people walking around the shrine chanting. And, oh, it was just wonderful. I just felt like I was home. So right. that began my whole adventure with him. And that uh, trip, we went to Everest Base Camp, <laughs> the very first trip. No so kidding. we no kidding, and we lived in a tent for a couple of months together, and that either makes or breaks a relationship right there. <laughs> I'm but, sure it um, does. Ours, it made it. So um, we just realized that we were soulmates and that we were destined to be together. So we have been all these years, and so we've gone back on many, many tracks. At first, we were just totally in love with Nepal. And we went on many, many uh, treks and and hung around in Kathmandu and just drank in the delicious culture. And and one of the things I think that shaped us uh, also spiritually was the whole uh, Nawari take on Hinduism and Buddhism because they just mix it all up. They are not one or the other. You ask them, are you a Hindu? And they say yes. You say, are you a Buddhist? And they say yes. So it's all mixed up for them. And well, I love you know, that. as John, uh, yeah, I, I, I could see that. You know, as as John actually uh, mentioned, and I wasn't aware of this, that Buddhism actually sprung out of Hinduism. That Buddha was yes. a reformed yes. Hinduist, which I didn't yes. know. And so perhaps they were responding, you know, in in a not inaccurate way when they basically claimed to be either Hindu or Buddhist, because they mm-hmm. are, they mm-hmm. sort of ran into one another those religions. Mm-hmm. 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 And I love also that the Hindus just um, accept a lot. You know, they're more accepting than you might think. Uh, for instance, they just say, "Well, Jesus, he's just another saint, another another aspect of the Godhead." And the whole idea of them having many gods is sometimes confusing to people. Uh, but really, what it is is more like um, just symbolic aspects of the universe. And so they're not really worshiping many gods. They're worshiping one giant force, but these are um, are ways for the average person to be able to understand what it's all about and bring it now, down it, to something like a like a Ganesh, you know, of overcoming right. obstacles that you now, could personify gods? this and right. be able to uh, conceptualize it and understand that it would be an elephant overcoming the obstacles. Uh-huh. So it's not that they're worshipping elephants, they're worshipping the concept of overcoming obstacles. And how many gods do they have, for instance? Oh, thousands. Thousands. <laughs> they're all, really? yes, they're all aspects of of the universe, you know? Interesting. So, yeah, it's wonderful. It's really, it's fascinating. The more you know about it, uh, the more interesting it becomes. And, you know, people go there and they just say, well, I'm just going to let it happen. Well, if you just go there not knowing anything about it, you can walk right past the 5th century uh, uh, statue that's just kind of sitting there on the side of the road. Uh, you need to 
the, the more you know, the more you educate yourself about the culture, the richer experience you can have. Now, how would so, you compare Nepal to, let's say, India? Well, they're they're pretty different. Um, India is just kind of a riot, you know. It's just there's just so much noise and so many people and so much uh, activity and color and and everything. It's just kind of overwhelming and the uh, assault on your senses. Uh, of course, we love that. I mean, people either love it or hate it, and we just right. love it. It's so passionate. You feel so alive when you're there, and particularly when you're going again to the shrines. Uh, we spent four months going down south. First, we went on the uh, east coast of, of India, down on the southern part, down Tamil Nadu, starting at Madras, and went all the way down and visited all the big shrines, crossed over at Madurai, and then continued down on the west side into Kerala. And so along the way, we probably visited, I don't know, 40 shrines or 50 shrines. Wow. And and these are huge. These are enormous. And, for instance, the one at Madurai has 10,000 pilgrims a day. It's a river of people. Unbelievable. And it, flooding is this, past is this, you. Is this uh, throughout the year or only in a particular time Every of day. the year? Every day. Every day. Every day. And, and when there's a festival, it's even more. So it's you do have to get used to... Uh, the press of people because they don't have the same um, concept of personal space that we do in of course. New York. You know, somebody sits too close to you on the subway, you, you get up and move. But uh, in India, they're just pressing up against you all the time, and they all want to touch you also and shake your hand and be, be near you. They're very passionate and very uh, hands-on. So... I love that. I Yeah, you know, it, it calls to mind the expression, the humanity of it all. It is, really. It's it, in, it is in humanity. every aspect humanity. of it. As you, when you look out on the, on the throngs of people, or John mentioned that we were at Varnasi, we were there for a, a bathing festival where, oh, 15 or 20,000 people tried to get into the river at this exact perfect moment, you know, to bathe, to they believe that that the river is sacred and it washes away uh-huh. all of your sins and and that you have this experience and it's very uh, potent for them. They're all chanting and and having a, a, a wonderful experience, but of course mm-hmm. with ten thousand other people. <laughs> so we got into a boat. You. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, we got yeah, into a boat and went out into the river. Right. But it was biblical. And- I'm sure it was. Now, you know, when you were <laughs> telling that story about the 15 or 20,000 people trying to get into the river, mm-hmm. a thought came through my mind that I wanted to ask you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people people often say that religions such as the Catholic Church are used to suppress people throughout the world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. keep mm-hmm. them ignorant and perhaps poor. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. feel that the same thing is true of a re- religion like Hinduism in a place like India? Well. You know, there's the problem of the caste system in India, in, in India, and it is a major problem. And they uh, they do need to improve their um, their respect for women and women's rights and all of that. But that's kind of a tribal thing too. Uh, something that they just I believe that they'll just get past this eventually. But um, Buddhism is for everyone, and the Buddha welcomed women and said that everyone could reach enlightenment. In fact, that's what I love about Buddhism is 
that it's a, a way of raising your consciousness. They don't ask you to believe in anything supernatural. They just say you need to be responsible for yourself and raise your consciousness until yeah, you can. I love that message. Can. Yes, and so they're not. At, this was my problem with growing up Christian was all of these things that I had to believe that seemed just odd to me. I mean, starting with the virgin birth, you know, this was something I would argue with my Sunday school teachers until they would finally, exasperated, call my mother and say, she doesn't have enough faith, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't swallow all that. I wanted to awaken. And really, that's what it's all about, is trying to, to wake up to reality. That's my goal, is to understand what's really going on. Not what I think's going on, not the story right. I'm making up, but what's really going on in life. I have a question for you also. You've gone to this, these parts of the world, and I'm, I'm being very broad when I talk about that, such as you know India, uh, Southeast Asia, and places like that. But let's, let's focus on India for a moment. Do you, do you and John believe that the people there are happier than the people, let's say, in the United States? Well, I certainly think uh, that's the goal of the Bhutanese, for instance. We've been to Bhutan. I would say that's probably the happiest country I've ever been to. And they even have something they call, uh, they say that their gross, gross national product right. is happiness. Yeah, <laughs> They're not that. joking. <laughs> so, um, and but, they're, but can you they're force uh, happiness? Contrary like yeah, but but can you really force happiness? I mean, isn't happiness not a forcing. byproduct like everything else? It's not forced. I think it's focusing I think on they it. Are, uh, I think they're more contented. Is really what it is. They're just not. They don't uh, strive to have so much. Uh, they live simple lives, and they're not so. Um, I mean, we need so much money. And we always need the latest gadget and the latest car and the latest clothes. And, and this is the whole uh, capitalistic uh, machine that's driving it. And advertising also is driving it, that you must have the, the new fashions. Well, in Bhutan, they all wear the same clothes. And you are required to wear the same clothes. They weave their clothes. Right? Yes. They all have to wear these, uh, these uh, outfits, these the traditional clothes. You're not allowed to have blue jeans, and you're not allowed to have Western clothes. You wear the traditional clothes, and they're beautiful. They're fantastic. Right. We brought home so many fabrics. I can't tell you. I bet, but, just, but tourists are allowed to wear whatever they want, aren't they? Yes, they are. But when but, we go but to these countries, yeah, out of respect, do you end up wearing the local clothes when you're I there? I do. John, not so much. Um, but I try to wear um, a sarong or or whatever they're. The women are wearing. I've actually trekked in skirts before, um, and they are just so much more open to you. Or if you're in a Muslim country, you know, I cover my head. What's the big deal? It, right. it makes you so much more acceptable. And then the women come up to you. It's not that they don't, you know, they're not offended by it so much. I mean, I think they certainly are offended by, let's say, sleeveless blouses or too short a skirt or something like that. Or shorts, they mostly uh, are very offended by shorts on either sex. And right. for tourists not to be aware of that is just kind of rude. They just look at you like, ugh, you're, you're so um, gross. But uh, as soon as you put on some of their, um, 
something that they're wearing so that they feel comfortable. The women come up to me, they hold my hand, they look into my eyes, they want to know. Unbelievable. They want to talk, they invite me into their houses, they put their baby on my lap. There's this whole big sisterhood thing going on over there where yeah. you you just are accepted um right. so much more easily if you if you just make a little effort to right. respect their traditions and to show that you right. think what they do is beautiful. Yeah, you know, you're it's not trying to colonize right. them. Right. It sounds from what you're describing and unfortunately we're running out of time way too mm-hmm. fast that <laughs> it is it is such a uh, such a human experience and an extraordinary one at that to be in places like this where you're feeling, touching, sensing humanity at such close range. And I'm sure you've been impacted, you and John both, by these by these multiple trips. It's it's changed our lives. And I was so fortunate to go to Nepal when I was 24. And uh, the, the trekking experience also changed me profoundly because you only take a few items. I had two pairs of pants and right. two shirts, and that was it. And so right. at the beginning, I, I hate changing. I hate to say we're running out of time and to cut you okay. short. We could talk for hours about this, and I'd love we to could. have you and John back again. Um, Very good. Once again, Thank you, Martha and John, for coming on the show. It was way too short. I could talk for hours. Such a pleasure, really. Fascinating. And once again, this is Monergy Life. Have a great evening, everybody. Good night. And once again, thanks so much to you and John. Thank you so much. Good night. Hey, Robert, thank you so much for having me on.